This is Chuck Wilson on Sports, featuring professional and amateur athletes, coaches at all levels, parents, educators, officials, and others, sharing insight and perspective from the playing field and discussing issues that impact the game. Chuck Wilson on Sports and our Peer into Character Conversations are presented by Evenfield, a recognized nonprofit organization cultivating integrity, life skills, and leadership through sports. Now, here's Chuck. Does playing a single sport at an early age boost a child's chances for future success in that sport? Research shows that waiting until after puberty to specialize in a single sport improves overall athleticism and increases a child's potential for future athletic achievement. Multi-sport athletes have fewer injuries, they experience less burnout, they adapt to change more easily and often are more coachable. And on average, they play longer than single sport athletes. Our guest today is Steve Boyle, co-founder and director of Connecticut-based Two for One Sports, a widely acclaimed program that engages children in multiple sports at camps held around the country. The Aspen Institute's highly regarded Project Play initiative honored Two for One Sports as one of eight national models in the U.S. for sports sampling. And the program has twice been recognized by Hartford Magazine as one of Connecticut's top summer programs. Steve and his wife, Carrie, co-founded Two for One Sports. Both are former Division I athletes. Steve is a walk-on. Steve has coached soccer and basketball. He also is advisory board chair for the National Association of Physical Literacy. And we'll be discussing that as well. But Steve, first off, tell us about the why and the backstory of Two for One Sports. You know, I think that's one of the kind of cool things about our tagline of life's too short for just one sport. The why is sort of built in there, but then people are like, well, how did you get there? So I now have a 24-year-old daughter who, when she was nine, had tried out for the local travel soccer team in West Hartford, Connecticut, where my wife Carrie and I were raising our three kids. And she was the oldest of three, and Carrie and I come from a strong sport background. And you know, to be honest, we just didn't want our kid to stink at stuff. You know, like obviously as any parent, you, you want their participation level to be one that's enjoyable and that they can find their niche. So I was actually coaching soccer at the public high school there in town and Carrie was an athletic director. So when she tried out, we had no idea how she would do. We didn't have a baseline for how good she was. Well, we get the phone call. You know, and it's kind of one of those sort of proud parent phone calls. Hey, your daughter's our number one prospect. And I was like, Dude, she's nine years old, you know, and you know, she's a prospect of anything. And so he doesn't really get my response and starts to go on about how she's going to fit into her, his Brazilian style of play and his system and the whole thing. And I'm thinking, like, you know, I've coached now in New York City, Seattle, and now here in West Hartford. I, I know soccer. And so I finally said, well, look, you know, um, my wife played lacrosse in college, and Atlanta's starting to show some interest in lacrosse. Can you tell me what the conflict will be like in the spring? Because we were disappointed to hear that travel is a fall and a spring sport. And he goes, hold on a second, as if he's going to go talk to the guy in the back of the car dealership. <laughs> and he comes back like 20 awkward seconds later and says, we're no longer interested in your daughter. <laughs> Went from number one prospect. Yeah to no longer interest it simply because as a nine-year-old, she was expressing interest in trying another sport. And I can't say you, to you right now the choice words I had for this gentleman, who you know, is a perfectly fine guy. You know, it's, you know, I don't, and I don't mean to blast him so much, but 
he represented a lot of what we were starting to see. But when it becomes personal, then all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is different, right? It's happening to your own child. And we had seen this stuff going on. And I was seeing it as a coach at the high school level. Kerry was seeing it as an AD. So we decided, look, we could infiltrate, all right, as opposed to shouting from the mountaintops how bad it is. You know, people today will just go on Twitter and tell the story, and then they move on. So we said, let's do something about it. And so that moment changed our lives. We had no idea it would, but it changed our lives and thankfully the lives of a lot of other people. So that night we came up with the tagline, life's too short for just one sport. We went to the administration at Cary's school and said, hey, we have an idea for a multi-sport camp. In fact, we called it Boyle's Three Season Sports Academy our first year because we wanted to bring back the three-sport athlete. You know, from there it just resonated so much with folks. Like, People inherently know the value of multi-sport, but they just, they need to see people at a higher level demonstrate why it's important. And I think that's something we were able to do in our approach and in our model. How would you describe that, uh, that philosophy that you developed? At the start, it was just, let's bring back the three-sport athlete and let's bring back the just be home by dark and don't miss dinner sort of mentality. So I, I can't say there was a philosophical approach when we first started it, except we saw just how absolutely crazy sports were becoming in terms of, you know, travel soccer was the first culprit, but soon to follow was AAU basketball. Then there was travel lacrosse and travel hockey and travel field hockey. So now as we look back, I mean, we have a much more sort of intentional sort of definition of, of what we do from a long-term athlete development standpoint coupled with physical literacy development. And so I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about physical literacy as our conversation continues. But I hadn't even heard of physical literacy at that point. It, was, it would probably be six years before I heard the term physical literacy, which is now part of what I do internationally is to talk about that concept and to program for it. How would you describe the culture of the program? Well, I, I think when we first started, we, you know, you, you kind of learn by doing and you learn by failing and, you know, uh, making some mistakes. Initially, we, we were part of the problem. We were, uh, we were over, we were over instructive. We were, we were programmed to the minute. And now I would say we're rooted in play. Like really what we do is we, are, we want to bring back the joy of play because for so many kids, play isn't fun. I mean, think right. about that. Like how can that be? Like all, all of our early childhood memories, when we think about ourselves at play, there's never an adult involved. Right? I, I, I open up a lot of my talks when I'm doing trainings. Give, share a memory of yourself as a child at play. And 95 to 99% of the memories never involve an adult. And so that, that fed us, you know, that led us just to lead with that, to say, look, let's get kids doing their thing and then let's either participate with them or let's get out of the way. But let's not be on the sidelines barking instructions. So our, our whole approach and our whole philosophy is really to teach kids that space, environment, Equipment should not be a hindrance, right? So, you know, growing up with five brothers, we'd ball up socks if it was too nasty out to go outside. And we'd, we'd figure out the broomstick or something else that we could use as the bat. Or we'd shoot, you know, something into some implement. And you're constantly making up games. Kids don't do that anymore. Yeah. Everything is just so formulated now. Uh, everything is adult-driven. What's happened to youth-led activities? I think a lot of that is because at a young age, 
we start having kids go through drills and playing competitions with referees and adults on the sideline way too early. Like I can remember growing up that no one ever taught me anything until I was probably in middle school, right? And so everything I taught was self-taught. It would be watching the Celtics and then going outside and being Tiny Archibald or being Larry Bird. And I would put chairs in the driveway, I'd make up my own drills, but I was always by myself. So it was never this fear of failure. Right. There was never this fear of showing up on somebody's Instagram story or getting my ankles broken and being on YouTube and going viral for that. So I think we've created this culture where kids aren't, uh, they're not given the liberty to just try stuff and figure it out and say, oh, that felt good because that really worked or that obviously didn't work and they keep calling me for a travel or, or whatever the case may be. Like if we can just put kids in situations where they can learn the you know, social context of interacting with their teammates, how to pick teams, how to include other kids, and then how to try stuff out. Like that's right. how you get good at things. You try them out, and if it doesn't work, you either do it again or you move on to a different skill. We are seeing so many parents that will pull a kid out of practice so that they can play for another team yeah. because the feeling is, well, I want to give my child as many game situations as possible yep. so that they'll be able to compete better and, and learn and so on. But the learning is about trying new things. What kid is going to try out something new when they're in a game? So look, and it, a perfect example, you know, and I use a lot of basketball analogies because I can go back to my own roots in terms of that sport. But, you know, if you are just trying to experiment with a between the leg and a behind the back dribble in combination, and you're not allowed to do that at the playground because you're constantly in practice situations or in game situations, to your point, how do, yeah. you, how do you get to experiment in those situations? The other thing that, that's really happened as a result of this sort of hyper-instructive and parents so involved is we reward the early bloomer right. and we miss out on the late bloomer. And so, I mean, you know, Chuck, I was, the, I was the ninth best player on an average freshman basketball team. And I loved basketball. I mean, I literally slept with the basketball as an eighth grader, and I was still the ninth best player, get that, as a 14-year-old on an average team. Four years later, I'm starting against Notre Dame in Madison Square Garden. Kids today, would, that would just never happen because that ninth best player would feel so demoted and not have an opportunity to then go do the things that I did, which was play for hours and hours and hours by myself to get better. No one taught me. I just sort of did it. And we don't give kids opportunity to do that because if I was in that generation, I wouldn't have made the AAU team because I was the ninth best player on a bad team. And so I would have just moved on to cross country or you know, soccer or something else. Tell us what the high school coach had told you. Oh, so... You know, and again, Coach Cusack, I still consider him a lifelong friend, but, you know, he had played Division I at Hofstra, and he was about my height, and I had two really, really good scorers on, on my high school basketball team, a 21 and a 23-point-a-game wow. scorer. And so my role was get Rory and get Jeff the basketball, right, and then defend the heck out of the best player on the other team regardless of their size. And so I, I, I did that. But then I'm like, you know, I can hang with these guys. You know what I mean? I, and I was always able to stop the best player on the other team. You know, kids that were going on to play in, in Dukes and, and the like. And so Coach Cusack, I went to him and I said, look, you know what? I, I have a check written to go to the State University of New York at Oswego, and I think I might be able to play there. I go, but I really want to play Division I basketball. 
And he said to me, you could never play Division I basketball. And that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> because, you know, at that point, I'm like, all right, well, this is somebody who I really admire. And I don't prescribe this as a coach, certainly. Right. And I think we're in a different generation where, say, if the wrong person had said that to me, um, we just had a kind of a relationship like that, where I don't know if he was intending to motivate me, but sure enough, a year later, I had, you know, a lot of it was good timing and good luck, but it happened. There are a couple things in play that, that really concern me. One is the idea uh, of travel sports being more than one season. Mm -hmm. Because what I think the adults miss on this, Steve, there is an incredible social component when a kid is able to wear that travel jacket to school, be able to sit with those kids and so on, for those kids that don't make it, yep. the social exclusion, uh, not having common experiences with your friends and stuff, you don't have that if you are playing multiple sports right. because you've got these multiple opportunities to be able to have all kinds of connections and so on. Boy, you tie yourself to one sport. I mean, we had two of our three kids play travel soccer they liked soccer, but they didn't really want to necessarily play it two seasons a year. And by the way, during the winter, you're on your own, but you're highly yeah. uh, advised to work on your skills indoor. Exactly. And you're saying to yourself, you know, look, you know all the, all the facts. We've done the research to see that this specialization at early ages is causing an incredible amount of burnout, even for kids who like a particular sport. Let's, let's address that and why the sport sampling is so important, even beyond the first couple of years of a kid's experience with youth sports. Yeah, again, Chuck, you brought up so many different pieces, but that social component is obviously huge. And again, I would argue it speaks to the early bloomer. And so right. what, you're, what you'd find is, you know, those really good early athletes who might have older siblings that, you know, you grew up, you know, when you're young playing with, you you're, might be at a particular advantage for that reason. Well, it's, it's super unfair that now that kid has made travel soccer, travel basketball, travel lacrosse, all the elite ones. And it's mainly because they're coordinated at a young age and exactly. they can run really fast, yep. right? And so what happens then as adults, we're looking at it thinking, all right, so I had 19 kids show up for my travel basketball tryout and I decided to cut four, you know, yep. so that I could have a roster of 15. Well, first of all, if you can't program for 19 kids in a six basket gym, then you shouldn't be coaching. And the positive thing you may have done for those 15 fifth graders, you know, 11 year olds, think about the detriment you did to the four that you just cut. You're reducing yeah. the, the potential number of kids because you don't know who's gonna grow into their bodies. Why reduce it before kids have even reached puberty? It just doesn't make sense. Well, I think part of it is, is a lack of alignment in most towns and communities between that sort of varsity program. The, the, the towns where I've seen have great success are the ones where there's just this cross-generational approach that, right. that the varsity coach actually cares about what's happening in their feeder systems. And they're going in and doing clinics and they're talking to the parents. And, and they're not saying to kids, you should only be playing soccer or only playing basketball. I mean, they all get long-term athlete development that up to age 12, you should be sampling. And it's not to say you can't continue to sample, but up to age 12 to tell kids, look, I get gymnastics, 
I know there are some sports, you know, people talk, talk about Tiger Woods had he not started then, but Roger Federer didn't pick it up seriously until he was 13 or 14, you know what I mean? So, because tennis sometimes gets a bad rap. I'm sorry, like if, if you're playing a, a multitude of sports, you're getting better at other sports. Right. I mean, you just are. And, and I, you know. And we, one builds on the other. I mean, one sport helps another and you avoid a lot of the physical burnout. We know 50% of athletic injuries at early youth sports are tied to overuse injuries. So let's have our kids exposed to as many sports as possible. This gets back to the sampling. I wanna know how you do sampling. What does sampling sports mean two for one? Yeah, so in each of our programs, uh, we always give choice when we're able. And we're in the age of COVID right now, so because of that, we've had to shift to what's called a cohort model um, so that kids aren't commingling. And so with that, what we do in those cases is we rotate the cohorts through some predefined sports or activities. And often there'll be a combination of sports that we've just creatively joined, uh, you know, a couple of sports together so that kids are, are sort of seeing the, the, the fundamental movements of, <clears throat> of one sport to the next crossing over. I think in our traditional model, We'll give up to five, um, at least five choices, up to our largest program has 14 choices. And in the registration process, they'll choose at least three sports. And then we'll build a master schedule that's almost like, all right, you know how you have English, math, and social studies? Well, you might have tennis, field hockey, and basketball, right? And then the next, and at the same time, might be going on would be flag football, baseball, and what we call universal sports, which is, uh, sports from around the globe where each day you'll get introduced to a new one. And so from a sampling standpoint, when we do our trainings with our coaches, is we're always trying to hook that kid that sees themselves as a soccer-only person or a basketball-only person so that when you're teaching something like fencing or you're teaching something like lacrosse, you can help them see how the skill of the sport they know directly applies to the one they don't. Because for a lot of kids, it's, it's just fear, right? They just, they're like, well, what if I stink at it? Or what if I don't know the rules? Or what if I look silly? And so it's real, when they have that aha moment of, oh my gosh, this is exactly the way I play basketball. Like I coach girls lacrosse. There's not a man in the world who's ever played girls lacrosse. It's a, it's a different game than the men's game. And I didn't even play men's lacrosse. But I, gotta tell, I loved it so much because everything I did, I stole from basketball. Defensive drills, we did like three and five man weaves, you know, in terms of, but all the cutting concepts, you could set screens, you do backdoor cuts. It was so similar. And so I was able to recruit the basketball kids and say, look, it's a heck of a lot easier to cradle this thing than it is to bounce the ball and do all the other things we're doing. So they picked it up so quickly. And so when you can do that in a sampling program in a week or two, you can then get kids hooked to be able to say, hey, I think I'm gonna try out for field hockey. That was really fun. And now I'm not afraid to try out because I know the rules. Tennis is, is one. It's amazing to me how many kids don't know how to go to the park and keep score in tennis. They, they're like 15, love? What yeah. does love mean? Yeah. You know? And yeah. so in a sports sampling program, by the end of the week, they can take mom and dad to the park yeah. and, and play tennis and play a game and then play a set if they want. Like That's a good skill for them to have for the rest of their life. Give us a little backstory of how you realized the, the importance of having coaches who have a multi-sports background and know how to teach kids. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the most important thing, right? I think when, 
you just said it. We teach kids and we coach kids. A lot of people say, well, I teach math. No, you teach kids. Math is the subject you're teaching, right? And so when we talk about coaching, same thing. We coach kids first. And so I, you know, and sometimes I'll have some coaches be like, well, you know, I don't have a really strong baseball background. I'm like, you don't have to have a really strong baseball background to get kids excited about baseball because, in fact, if you can coach kids, you can join with them on your own fear of your own inadequacies because that when you do that with kids it makes a big difference right so i mean i'm awkward when i when i play baseball like i, I kind of swing out here so then i could say to a kid like can you tell me what i'm doing wrong so part of what we do is we join with kids and it's one of the reasons we tell our coaches you have to play like if you come to our program don't come because you want to learn how to do a crossover dribble or you want to learn how to do a maradona or you want to learn how to throw a changeup, right you come to our program because you want to learn how to play in the backyard, in the street, organize games. Because that's this, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's not instruction. Heck yeah, it is, right? Because what we've, what we've created in sports sometimes are performers. We've created dancers. Like, I, I saw it all the time when I was coaching high school soccer. We always kept the kids that could juggle 74 times. You never juggle in a, in a real soccer game. I'd rather get the kid who's going to run after the ball that's going out of bounds and save it as if it, that their whole life depends on it. Like, that's who I want. But what we've done is we start to reward the dancers, the, the kids who can break somebody's ankles in basketball, the somebody who can real, maybe run a certain you know, 40 time or whatever. Like, none of the stuff that really is going to matter at the high school level. So the instruction we do is really about how to organize yourselves into fun play so that the creativity we were just talking about, without adults involved, they can do without the adults there. One of the beauties, I, I think, of the program in this long-term athlete development model came from Canada. It's been ADM, American Developmental Model here, but sports have figured it out. Hockey was losing, right? Mm -hmm. Losing so many kids. And they suddenly said, okay, let's back off. Let's figure out what makes this fun. Yeah. And they start looking at it. Well, let's, let's do cross-ice, three-on-threes, and get more, kid, more kids doing rather than watching, right? Yes. That goes back to the whole idea of not cutting players, just keep as many in, in the mix as you can. But this early effort to get confidence coming from competency mm -hmm. on motor skills, on movement skills, so the kids feel better about their ability to move their body. Talk a little bit about the importance of getting kids at early ages to develop some of these movement and motor skills, because this is key. Absolutely, and, and again, I think you know, the, what we were hearing out of Europe was that some of the, some of the higher end clubs were hiring circus arts people or gymnastic coaches to come in to teach their kids how to fall because they were getting all these injuries because these high-level soccer players, when I say high-level, they could do some of the soccer stuff, but again, to the point I was making before, they didn't know how to fall. They didn't know how to tumble. They didn't, you know, none of those things. And so the, the, the way you learn those things is by doing them. And so with the ADM, the Long-Term Athlete Development Model, really what they're saying is we got to give as many touches and as many experiences as possible. Right. So if you've got a, you know, if you take hockey and you were going the long ice, it meant that kids were watching a lot. I mean, it, one of the things I always prided myself on before we ever did 241 was the efficiency of practices. I got 90 minutes. How am I going to maximize the 90 minutes so I get 
my, my whole group feels involved, and we get better. Like, how do you get better? Well, you get better by playing. You get better by doing and putting them into game situations. And so I think, you know, one of the things that I, what, that I found, too, was that a lot of coaches were doing drills where a lot of kids were watching, and then there was a lot of stopping and then instructing and correcting. Well, that's no fun. It's no fun for the person getting corrected. They're young. They're embarrassed. An adult is now correcting them in front of their peers. Yep. And the peers are bored because they could care less what you're saying to that kid. And now they're twiddling their thumbs or they're punching each other and they're being kids. And then we lose them from sport. So hockey did get it. They said, hey, let's get more kids involved, more touches, more creativity. And then you sort of naturally develop those movement skills that you're talking about because you're playing the game. Right? And that's where you develop the ability to fall, the ability to plant and cut, right? all those things that happen sort of naturally when you're playing these sports. It's not to say that we don't teach them in some capacity and we don't drill for them in some capacity, but we certainly don't overdrill when we right. trust they're going to get as much out of just putting them in that game situation as they are, I am to put them in a drill to do the exact same thing. Because the first thing that kids will say when they arrive at practice is, are we going to scrimmage today? Yeah, exactly. They just want to play. Exactly. They just want to play. And they don't want to play in a situation where you're constantly stopping me, right? And you're constantly lecturing me, or you're making me feel badly about myself while I'm playing. <laughs> we wonder why yeah. uh, kids decide if they'd rather play video games and so on. Exactly. And Tom Ferry, who you, you know well at Aspen Institute, right? He made the point. What do the makers of these games do? They figure out what the kids want. Exactly. And the more that we can make this kid-centric, I mean, that's what's going to keep them playing. And they'll develop a passion to play. But if you take away their joy, I mean, I'm a big John Wooden guy. Yeah. So it, to me, it is all about the process. And you've been able to take that and get the parents to buy into, hey, the process of learning to play sports, uh, the social and emotional components to it, this idea of how to collaborate with others, how to work toward a common goal. All of these things are really things that can be done if we're intentional about having kids have deliberate play, giving mm -hmm. them creativity, right? But having it with the kind of structure that will help them. Sure. Yeah, you look, I, I mean, I think one of the things as a longtime counselor and coach, I would often quip that I did more counseling when I was coaching and more coaching when I was counseling because really, you know, it's ultimately about building relationship, holding kids accountable, right, and setting high expectations for them, and then kind of getting out of the way and letting them own it in some capacity. But I think that's why I was drawn to the concept of physical literacy and long-term athlete development, which I try to not look at in isolation right now. I think... You know, we call it the American Development Model here in the United States, but it is our version of long-term athlete development, which is a term I like better simply because long-term. It says, you know, we're in a slow cooker. We're not in a microwave, right? And so what you got to allow is over time for kids to develop at their own pace, right? And I think that's part of the problem. But as a counselor, what I was drawn to on physical literacy was all coaches always focus on ability, right? I got to teach skills. But confidence and desire, to me, like that's where the magic happens, right? Because if you look at the physical literacy cycle, right, it's ability, confidence, and desire to be physically active for life. Well, you can enter the cycle through desire, like I really want to do this. You could enter it through confidence. I'm really good at it, right? 
or you can enter it with ability. Like, you know, I, I want to keep learning more skills, and because I'm good at it, I'm now confident, which gives me the desire to then learn more skills, right? It's like dancing, right? You're probably first going to try to do it in front of the mirror before you go out in public. But then when you realize, like, you know, I think I got this. I have the confidence to go out and dance in public, and now I have the desire to go back and learn some more new, some new moves. I have a colleague, Glenn Young, who is the athletic director and the head of PE at the largest school district in British Columbia. And Glenn and I talk a lot about physical literacy. At the end of the day, he said, it's about creating a disposition to be active for life. And I like that, right? Because I think a disposition is like, you just sort of, like, you know, sometimes, well, it's a science kid. That's a music kid. Well, we should all be movement people, right? We should all be movement kids. And so a disposition is really just sort of like, Oh, that kid, you know how sometimes we say, oh, that kid's an athlete, right? Oh, that kid's a player. That kid, but we're all movers, right? So at the end of the day, physical literacy should be about developing movers, right? And that could be dance, could be hiking, could be yoga. And in my case, I like to do it through sport, but that's just been my thing. And so when we think about physical literacy, a lot of, a lot of the analogy we'll give is building blocks, right? And so what we're trying to do in the early years is build these fundamental movement skills so that you know, like phonics, right? You're gonna, you're gonna try to connect the sounds and then eventually you create words and sentences and then stories. And so same thing as far as physical literacy goes. But it's why now I, I like to couple it with long-term athlete development. So um, one of the things we look at is sort of a developmental stage with physical literacy. And then in the early years, what's so important is um, there's an, there's an explorative stage, right? Which is kind of like sampling, but a, but a little more um, uh, free-flowing and imaginative. And so picture a kid, if you were to put a bucket of balls, some scarves, and you, and you put them on the outside of the playscape, the first thing they'd probably do is go up and down the slide and climb the monkey bars, but then they're gonna come find the implements. And so from a physical literacy standpoint, think about the idea of giving kids opportunities to try what they want, right? And eventually, they're going to find the balls and the scarves, and they're going to start to play with those as well. And so we're not, because what happens too much now, especially in America, is we take you to t-ball, or we take you to soccer, and anybody can run into the ball, but the, the child didn't choose that. And if they, you're saying they did, it was because you gave them positive feedback. You told them how good they were at it. That felt good, so now they're going to do it. So with physical literacy, what we try to do is really allow them to create internal locus of control, that, they, that they're owning some of the choices. And, that, and it's hard. Look, I get as a parent, you know, you're busy, you got work, and there's only so many programs you can do, but why do they have to be driven everywhere, right? Why can't you organize stuff at the local park, in your backyard, in the street, you know, with friends, with cousins, with whoever? Like, I think, especially up until age 12, why are we driving, you know, 940 miles for a weekend tournament when you're playing a town that lives eight miles away from you. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? And so, it, look, I could do a whole sort of thing on physical right. literacy, but in, in the short term, I think it's about creating opportunities for kids to develop genuine confidence and have their own desire, not parental desire. It has to, it, otherwise you're gonna lose them. You just are. They're gonna turn 13 and they're gonna say, are you kidding me? I've only been doing this because you told me I was good at it and you told me I like it. I don't like it that much. Right? But if you can get them to own the desire piece of it, that's where the magic is. And one of the things you've talked about has been you can make this connection, kind of make it cool to kids from the superhero standpoint. It's, you know, 
reflect on that a little bit as to what your thinking is. Yeah, so we, you know, we've done this thing of, around, you know, helping kids feel more powerful because for me that's the confidence piece. Like so many of them, I mean, we, you know, again, go back to my counselor hat. We're medicating kids for anxiety in the third and fourth grade. And anxiety is really just a lack of confidence, right? And so if we can reverse that at an early age, we can teach them, first of all, how to control the anxiety, right? You're in charge of the way you think. So we do this thing where we, we take them from how they're feeling, help them identify their emotions, but take them from how they're feeling to how they want to feel. Because in most cases, you can you know, re replace the anxious thought, the angry thought, the, the goofy thought, whatever, and go to that place. And so we think about it as a superhero, like, I'm in charge, you know, and that sort of confidence of being able to, you know, do what you want, that, that you have the power and you have the ability. And obviously, you know, we all dream when we're kids about flying and doing all that, but just even body posture, right? It's just, if you can teach those sort of things to kids at a young age, it'll translate over time because it becomes a life skill. Self-discovery, self-determination, right? If we can foster those kinds of, I want to have kids have the desire to take on challenging tasks. Yes, yes. Right? Yeah. You want to encourage them to do that and, and that failure should be looked upon as a way to learn. Yes. Right? That's how you learn. Yeah. What I'll say to parents is, or you know, coach parents, is you measure your wins and losses not on your, your record. It's on how many kids come back the next year. Right? It's simple as that. And then look back on who your favorite coach was. And it's the Maya Angelou effect. You might not remember what they say or what they did, but you remember how they made you feel, right? And so if we can get people to every day they go into a practice to say, I want this kid to remember how I made them feel. No decent human being wants to make a kid feel lousy about themselves. You know, God bless Chaz Walker. I, I, you know, I don't even know where the guy is who's my freshman basketball coach. I'm in the game at the, end, at the end, and, you know, again, I wasn't one of the better players. I'll never forget. So I'm on, you know, it's like we're down like, you know, we're down one point with maybe four seconds ago. I'm on the foul line, and I'm about to, I'm stepping up, and, of course, I'm just sweating, right? And all of a sudden, I look over at, at Coach Walker doing his best Chris Farley impersonation. He goes, relax, relax. And I, of course, missed both free throws. He yelled at me for missing them as if I tried to miss them and I, I tried to not relax. But I think that, you know, that's part of why we got to do quality coach training, right? Or, you know, why are we putting kids in so many game situations at so young of an age to even have parents who are yelling at kids? I mean, I think that's the other problem is why do you have a 30-game spring season for nine-year-olds. I mean, it's crazy, right? The other problem is the, is the pressure that we put on those coaches, volunteer or not. Yeah. And I can usually tell a lack of confidence from any coach, and you'll hear this in every level, every game, even at the college level, you hear it. What did we just talk about? Yeah. It's as if they're announcing to the parents or the fans, like, I know what I'm doing. It's the kid's fault, yeah. right? And so as a result, the kid then loses any trust. But all you're doing is announcing your frustration, and please don't ridicule me because I know why you're complaining that that kid's doing that. So we create this awful cycle of coach-parent-player relationship. And so one of the things we talk about so much in our, in our programs is the power of relationship, coach-to-player, parent-to-coach, 
and then parent to player as well. It's like we need to teach parents how to communicate with their child. That's one of the most important things we do when we are working with organizations outside of our own d direct programming. So we'll go in and we'll do trainings and we'll, or we'll you know, as consultants, work with some schools and, and to, to develop athletic programs or what they might be doing. And we've developed, you know, we're, we're big acronym people, right? So because we want people to be able to remember the things we're talking about. So one of the things we develop, which can apply to business and any other settings, is the CARE path to success. And CARE stands for culture, ability, relationship, and enjoyment. And it's four equal parts. What, what we have found when looking at most programs is there's somewhere between 50 and 90% on the ability part, right, the competence part. Well, the first thing you got to do is think about what kind of culture you want to have. And when you build culture, you don't just build it with one individual. You build it with your entire system, with your parents, with the town you might be serving, with the school you might be serving. You have to, and you have to be deliberate about how you're going to do that. And it's more of a Venn diagram because when you look at relationship, to me, relationship is, is going to impact culture. You can't really teach ability unless you have relationship, right? Like, if you don't like your teacher, you're probably not going to pay attention. And then enjoyment. And when we write the word enjoyment, we capitalize joy, right? Because joy is a powerful word in and of itself. And if, if what we're doing isn't fun, we're going to lose kids. And it's probably not worth doing, quite frankly, if it's sport. And now look, I, you know, when sometimes people are like, oh, you're too much on fun. Like, look, it, it's a game. At the end of the day, it's a game. And you talk to Steph Curry and you watch him, he's having fun. It's enjoyable for him, right? It's not to say that we don't have kids work hard and we don't put them in situations that are challenging and we don't allow them to mourn a loss, right, if, if that feels appropriate, but we don't allow them to be mean or to be mourning the loss two weeks later, right, or any of those things. So culture, ability, relationship, enjoyment. We think that's a pretty good recipe for that sort of volunteer coach or that paid coach or a parent or a kid to look at to say, okay, am I, am I focusing on those things in the equal parts that they deserve? Ability has to be there, right? You need to know how to play the game. You need the skills to get better at it. But don't focus just on that. It's like you were saying before, process, right? If you do all the, if you do all the other little things, I'm telling you, wins and losses just take care of themselves. You're gonna, if you've got some players, right, you're going to win a few games if you follow the care path to success. How do you intentionally foster character? Well, look, um, it's a great question, right? So, you know, when we, when we th I, like I always get worried about things like intentionality, right? Because, um, because that to me means I got to teach you, right? right? And yeah. so, uh, and, and when we say teaching, it's sit down and listen to me. Right. But I think so much of character development is in, is in modeling, yep. right? And I think the modeling piece about character uh, you know, character education is when you mess up, own it to the players, right? You know, if I was inappropriate with the referee, make sure the players see me apologize to that referee, right? Or let them know what, he, what I did to do that. If I made a, a, a boneheaded mistake in terms of how I should have subbed or handled making sure I got some kids in the game late in a, in a game, I got to make sure that the team sees me apologize to the players I may have wronged. And I think so much of it is um, goes back to relationship, right? So I would always start my practices with a circle, and it was an opportunity to sort of express how, where I was at emotionally to start that practice, 
but also give other players opportunities. And it was amazing to me how open people became. And I would just say, like, look, I just, had a, I just left an awful meeting, and I'm telling you right now, I'm in a foul mood because of that. And if I take it out on any one of you, I'm going to apologize right now, but I'm hoping by me acknowledging it, I'm not going to take it out on any of you. And I think that, that's where the character stuff comes in. It's, just, it's humanizing the experience. It's really letting them know I value you. Right? And I value the, the two hours we're about to have together. Like these are, these are precious moments. It's a short season. We only get each other a couple hours, hours a day. That stuff resonates much more than putting up, you know, pride is forever and stuff over locker rooms. I mean, that stuff's all well and good, but I don't think it has the same impact as, you know, practices in terms of how we treat each other. You put it so well, Steve. I think that when we think of teachable moments, we think that it has to be, the teaching has to be done mm. by the coach or the teacher. Mm -hmm. Really, it's about asking the kids about a situation and how it could be handled. Exactly. And getting them to reflect on it. Because again, it's about self-discovery. It's not about telling kids what their character should be. Mm -hmm. It's about putting them in an environment where they can reach certain uh, self-taught principles about how they think things ought to be done. And, and the way that they want to treat other people. And, uh, you know, competitive integrity. I want to ask you about that because uh, I get some interesting responses when I ask how someone views competitive integrity. How do you view it? Yeah, and, and again, I'll, I'll be honest, Chuck, it's not a term I've, ever, you know, I've heard over the years put together, but I love it because, you know, certainly a game like golf is known, right, for just honoring the game. And we see more about honoring the game. And look, growing up with, you know, with the amount of brothers I did and us all wanting to win, you know, a lot of times, you know, you almost learn how to not, you know, have integrity when you're younger because then you're watching your older brothers who don't want to lose to the little one essentially cheat, right, and, and to, to get by. And so it goes back to that relationship piece and really talking to kids about what matters, right, and about process. I think the, the worst thing that can happen, and I did this as a young coach, I'd start the season sometimes and be like, hey, let's go undefeated. And then all of a sudden, so we would do this cheer. We'd come in one, two, three, and we'd whisper, undefeated. And then we lost. Now what do you do? One, two, three, 19 and one. <laughs> and really what you were doing is you were saying that winning mattered more than anything else. So I think to have competitive integrity, the first thing you want to do is take the emphasis off of winning and put it on process. Because then all of a sudden, you don't feel this pressure to have to have that outcome. All you have is the pressure to be good to each other every day. And so if you can build a culture in your program where that is how you're measuring wins and losses, well, then you don't need to worry about things like fighting with the referee, about a call that you probably knew went off the other person anyway, or you know, judging those sorts of situations. So I think it's super important to really Talk to kids about what your goals are, but why. It's not to say, hey, well, we want to qualify for the state tournament. We want to see if we can beat our record from last year. But this is how we're going to do it. And we're not going to talk about that anymore. The rest of the season is going to be about how, on a day-to-day basis, we're going to treat each other and how we're going to perform in practice and, and all those other things. And obviously, you know, somebody watching this might only coach third graders. A lot of my frame of reference is thinking about anywhere from freshman JV to varsity level in the high school. And a college coach is, you know, their, their livelihood is tied to wins and losses. But even the ones who are successful there 
don't focus on, like, I, you know, I loved watching Gonzaga this year, right? And so when people look back on the Gonzaga season, it's going to be a little bit like the USA hockey, right? So remember the USA hockey story, of course. People forget that when they beat Russia, they still had another game. Yeah. I can tell you right now, when the Gonzaga folks look back on their season, what they're going to remember is the, is the win over, over uh, UCLA. They're not going to remember the loss as much as they remember the game over UCLA. That's going to define their season. And I can think it's because they have a culture right there that it wasn't like, if we don't win the championship, we're losers. Because when I think about competitive integrity, there's part of it is tied to that. It's, it's focusing too much on winning as opposed to process taking care of what's going to happen regardless. And lastly, the way you win matters. Right, uh, that's yeah. our message, uh, yeah. even field. Yeah, it's and it's, look, it's going to be looked at differently by some people. What does that phrase mean to you? Uh, you know, it was part of why I was drawn to even field was, was your tagline meant a lot to me, right? Because I think, you know, how we win is going to, that's character development, right? If we gloat, if we uh, do it with a lack of dignity, if we do it with a lack of empathy. I'll use the Gonzaga ex expression again. If you watch the clip at the end of the game, Jalen Suggs hits the half-court shot. The whole team runs up onto the table. Mark Few yeah. turns to the other coach and almost apologetically wants to give him a hug, even with his mask on, because he knew immediately how that half-court shot ended that guy's season. The way you win matters. Mark Few demonstrated that right there, and I think that's a perfect analogy of how we should be always thinking about who our competitors are and recognize it's a human process. Leave us with this. The message that you have about sports sampling, uh, about physical literacy, and where you're headed. Yeah, so each year I'm going to set some goals in terms of how we want to spread our message. But when I look back on the last decade plus, it's amazing to me how that moment of outrage uh, has turned into a movement that is now multinational. And so I sometimes feel like I'm running into the wind on this, right? And it's real challenging in terms of trying to get people to change culture, to change behavior. And one of the things I've realized is that I have to continue to try to take a top-down approach, work with national organizations, national governing bodies, professional sports, but take a bottom-up approach that the way to really create change is one community at a time. It's, it's, it's one locality at a time. And if we can do that and we start to gain momentum, conversations like this are super helpful because at the end of the day, people get it. Like they understand that what we're talking about makes good sense. We just try to help them get the courage to act on it and to program for it. And that's, I think that's the, the, the real differentiator between us and maybe some other organizations is that we program for it. We actually get boots on the ground and we do it, and then we get other people in their communities to do the same thing. And that's what we're hoping we can continue to do around the United States, North America, and, and other countries. That's Steve Boyle of Two for One Sports. For information about the Two for One Sports camps, visit twoforonesports.com. This presentation was written and produced by Chuck Wilson. Post-production editing and graphics by Chris Gemma. Narration and theme music by Patrick Runblad, licensed through premiumbeat.com. Our thanks to Professor Mike Davis in his studio production class at New England Institute of Technology for the recording of this interview. The recording took place at New England Tech's East Greenwich, Rhode Island campus.
We also thank Evenfield's Board of Directors and the following in particular for their support of Evenfield's mission and this multimedia production. Thomas J. Scala, the John and Jessica Pincus Family Fund, and highly regarded businesses in Rhode Island. The Virtus Group, trusted advisors, led by Mark Cruz, providing an array of comprehensive financial planning services for families and businesses. Epic Promotions, the Kuto family has four decades of experience in printing, branding, and marketing. Thank you, Barry, Adam, and Keith. Graphic Innovations, a New England leader in large format printing, graphics, and vehicle wraps, our thanks to Jim Larkin and his team. Chuck Wilson on Sports and our Peer into Character Conversations are presented by Evenfield, promoting integrity, life skills, and leadership through sports. If you enjoyed this program, please like us on Facebook and subscribe to this channel. And if you believe our content has value and you're in position to support us, a donation of any amount, big or small, would be appreciated. Evenfield is a recognized 501c3 nonprofit organization, and donations to Evenfield are tax-deductible to the full extent allowed by law. You can learn more about our organization at evenfield.org. I'm Mark Kestisher. And I'm Chuck Wilson. Let's inspire kids to exhibit competitive courage and to understand that the way you compete, achieve goals, interact with people, and do everything else in life shows the world how you value character and respect for others. Let's encourage each of them to be a person of integrity who is worthy of trust on and off the field. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.